right, guys. This is it. Part three. The end of the summer. It's Labor Day weekend. Summer's officially ending. Yep. And we're putting the done and dusted sign on Summer of Slaughter for this year. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could have ended it with anything better than the Manson family. I don't think so either. No, I, I truly don't. I think when you were coming up with this, like, you were, like, thing, like, we were throwing out ideas and stuff, and then as soon as somebody brought up Charlie Manson, Eric was like, that has to end it. That's like, our season finale. <laughs> you were like, okay, that's, that's great, perfect. Sounds yeah. good to me. Can't, Can't argue that. Uh-uh. Not at all. I love Charlie Manson. He is a gem. A crazy, crazy gem. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever looked up gifts of him? I was trying to find one for a post today. And they're always all like just so like elaborate. It was like all like court (laughs) and like him like on TV and stuff. And I was like, (laughs) can I just find one where he's not in full court, like in his little element? No. That's what I felt like it was. There was one where he did like a smile that I was like, that would be like quality. Like he looked like Elmo. He t- actually he made- looked like Elmo. Jesus Christ. <laughs> he literally made me scared of Elmo. My mom is terrified of Charles Manson. I mean, he's he's a freaky dude, but I mean, really, he turns that shit up when he's on camera in front of yeah. people. So we're glad you're feeling better. I am back from the dead. And uh, let's go ahead and get into this. So. Where we left off last episode, Charlie and the family members who were living with Dennis Wilson were kicked out, and they went back to Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch became Manson's kingdom. Here, he indoctrinated his followers through a series of acid trips, mandatory orgies, and hypnotic, repetitive lectures. When Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April of 1968, Manson began preaching about an impending race war. So one thing to remember is now that they're stuck at Spawn Ranch, things are starting to get a little rough. They don't have Dennis Wilson's money anymore. Members are starting to fall off, like just bounce Uh because the quality of life is going to shit. They're Uh back to eating out of dumpsters again. I mean, it, it's it's rough. They're stealing credit cards to pay for shit. To live? Yeah. yeah. Manson basically uses this race war shit as a way to keep the keep the members around. Right. Because he's like, oh, 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 you can't leave. There's a race war happening. Right. So that he... <laughs> Bugliosi hinges his entire defense or uh, perse- prosecution on... The Helter Skelter theory, which we're going to briefly go over. I think the truth is somewhere in between that and Manson in his own words. And we're going to find the middle ground through this. So let's continue. So then in November of 1968, the Beatles released the White Album. Oh, fuck. Yeah. He claimed that the Beatles, too, foresaw this coming clash and that their White Album was actually speaking to the family in order to motivate and lead them. In Manson's mind, benign songs like Blackbird, 
piggies, and most prominently, Helter Skelter, foretold a bloody apocalyptic race war. So let's listen to some of those songs <laughs> that they used. So let's start with Blackbird. I was going to say. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. So basically they said, Charlie said Blackbird was the Beatles telling black people to rise up against the white people. Uh, the next song, Piggies, which is the following track. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little piggies, life is getting worse. Always having dirt to play around So... With piggies, there's a lyric in there like, those piggies need a damn good whacking. And he said, that's the Beatles telling black people that they need to kill cops. It's, it's fucking crazy. But he's like, all the all the kids that are at the ranch are listening to the fucking White Album. Mm -hmm. So he's using the White Album to like bolster his own theory of the race war. Right. And on the, Bla uh, the White Album, there were songs like Sexy Sadie. Which they attributed to Susan Atkins, whose nickname was Sadie. And uh, my favorite song, Helter Skelter. And that song's fucking hard as shit, man. Like Helter Skelter is like a precursor to punk rock. It, it's it's yeah, they went hard. Yeah, that song kicks ass. Uh, fucking love that song. But you have to remember, other songs on that album were like Obladi Oblada. Obladi Oblada. But yeah, Helter Skelter's a fucking scary song, man. So that that was like the whole thing was he was using the Beatles White Album to weaponize his like beliefs in this race war that was coming. Poor Beatles. Just I know, they were trying to write songs. They were just trying to put out a banging album. Yeah, they tried to put out some bangers. And Charlie Man said to go and ruin it. I mean, they would like do acid and then play the album backwards, forwards. Yeah. Like, fucking crazy shit. So, in the scenario, Manson imagined during Helter Skelter, which he named after a song on the on the Beatles' White Album, the black population would fight the white population. While the race war ensued, 
Manson and his followers would be deep underground in a hole he claimed to have found in the desert. Eventually, the black population would emerge victorious, but they would find themselves unable to govern wisely. Then the family would come out of the hole, ride over the desert in custom-made dune buggies, and rule over the remainder of the Earth's population. Yeah, at this time, Manson was <laughs> fucking obsessed with dune buggies. But uh, I mean, they are fun. They're cool as shit. But Manson, uh, I can just imagine him being like, yeah, there's water out in the desert. It's crazy, man. We got to go out there. We can. And the last thing, like a bunch of black people that just overthrew the fucking government would want to see is a bunch of like crusty ass white people that have like emaciated from living in the desert. Yeah. Coming yeah. over the dune buggies, Mad Max style. Yeah. That's exactly what I was. Imagining. It's very Mad Max. <laughs> I was imagining Mad Max like style. Exactly. Oh, my God. So the family began to prepare for the end of the world under Manson's direction. Spawn Ranch was ideal for creating and racing dune buggies, stripping cars the family stole, and shooting guns in the creek bed. They were basically stealing a bunch of, like, car, like, Volkswagen Beetles and all sorts of shit and converting them into dune buggies with, like, gun platforms on them and shit. Mad Max style. Yeah, it's literally, like, Charles Manson is basically a Morton Joe from Mad Max (laughs) Fury Road. Starting in November of 1968, Manson and the others began staying at the ranch and discovered the nearby Barker Ranch. The buildings at Barker Ranch being in better condition, the family relocated there and later obtained Arlene Barker's permission to use the property on a temporary basis. At times, the family was using both properties. And they also had a satellite spot in L.A. that they nicknamed the Yellow Submarine. No way. Yeah. So they had three locations, but they spent most of their time at Barker Ranch and Spawn Ranch. Yellow Submarine. Was it at least yellow? I do not know. I hope so. I'm going to say it's yellow. I don't quote her on that. No, but I, I just like to think that it is, because why would they name it the Yellow Submarine if it wasn't Because they were yellow? all about the Beatles, but what's sad is, like, Manson was in jail until 67. He fucking missed the Beatles. Like, he missed the, the, the wave. The height of the fucking Beatles. Yeah. yeah. I love the Beatles. In March of 1969, Tex decided to go back to the Manson family. In April, he was arrested in Van Nuys for public intoxication. He was high on Belladonna, slithering on his hands and knees through a crowd of children saying, beep, beep, beep. So Tex Watson, uh, there was this guy who was making Belladonna tea named Indian Joe, who was an Italian guy. He was like one of the guys at Spawn Ranch. But... um, you boil the root and you can have a little bit of the tea and it's like hyper photorealistic trips. It's like angel trumpets. Nice. Fucking it's, it's that shit could, it fucks you up. Like it Tex Watson took the root and ate it like a fucking baked potato. Ew. He, he was never right again after that. I can only imagine like for Christ's sake, they found him thinking he was a car. I love yeah. that. I would love to see that. He was in Van Nuys on hands on 
all fours crawling around thinking he was a fucking Volkswagen Beetle for Christ's sake. Was he a dune buggy? Were they going to ride Texans to the I mean, desert? He, I, he might have thought he was a dune buggy at that point. I mean... <laughs> so, May of 1969, Melcher agreed to visit Spawn Ranch again. And this time he showed up, Melcher listened to Manson's music and promised him a recording session with a friend who owned a mobile recording studio in a van. Melcher returned in June with the recording van, but the entire day was a disaster, and Melcher declined to support Manson any further. It soon became clear to Manson that no record contract would be forthcoming from his company. And as Melcher's personal life fell apart, he withdrew completely from the social scene and moved out of his house at Cielo Drive. Yeah, this is, like, what really started to put the screws into Manson. Because there is no recording track coming. There's no money coming. Well, they were already loose. They were barely (laughs) in there. Um, There's probably about two screws left holding the whole thing together, and Manson's down to those. Yeah. The shit's getting ready to get dark from this point on. His makeshift dune buggies are probably put together better than what's going on in his head. Well, what's sad is he put everything he had into this music career. The family was like basically his Twitter followers. Right. They were that like he was building this music career and it's gone. He fucked it up. He fucked it all up. And the last lifeline that Terry Melcher threw to him, he fucked it all up. So. He's got nothing left. Right. He's got nothing left but this group of kids that he's responsible for to an extent. Uh Uh-huh. And they're out in the fucking desert preparing for some race war that's probably never going to happen. No. In Manson's own mind, he's like, man, I just threw that shit out there. Because really, (laughs) he just wanted to keep fucking two or three chicks at the same time. Of course. I mean, who wouldn't? He's just trying to hold what he had together. Right. He... I honestly think the whole Helter Skelter thing was set in jest. And it was just to keep everything together. So he could keep the lifestyle he'd built together. So that's my belief on it. But I can see that. Would you consider that like him peaking and wanting to keep that peak? He's like, I still want to be the running back. Yeah, he does not want to uh, fade away. Right. Like he was he was hell bent on being a star. Which is what Bugliosi like hangs his whole shit on once again. He wanted to be a rock star. That didn't pan out. He started this race war rap. And then manipulated all these kids into killing a bunch of people. I don't truly buy that. Right. Not not a hundred percent. Later that summer, Tex set up a fake drug deal to burn his ex girlfriend Luella. And a man named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow out of $2,500, which would be around $12,300 today. That's a lot of money, so I'd, yeah. I'd be pissed too. Oh, and Lotsapapa Crow was. Yeah. So Crow started threatening Luella. Luella called Spawn Ranch asking to speak to Charlie. She was looking for Charlie, Tex Watson. But Charlie Manson was handed the phone. 
Crow threatened to come kill everyone unless he got his money back. The threat led Manson to go to Crow's Hollywood apartment. The two men fought, and Manson shot Crow in the stomach. Charlie thought Crow died, but he didn't. He survived the attack, but didn't report to the police. He basically went to, like, one of those criminal doctors and Uh got patched up, and it was never made, like... Right. Never made a big deal out of it. But, yeah. This... Tex Watson is the cause for most of this shit. Yeah. And he's an idiot. He's a fucking idiot. Most of these people are idiots. Well, yeah. I mean, Manson himself is a two-bit fucking criminal that just found the right trip. (laughs) Two-bit. Because he's a little guy. Yep. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) Thanks. Later that night... Charlie saw on TV that a high-ranking member of the Black Panthers was murdered. After, as fear of outsiders and retaliation intensified, Manson warned the ranch residents that the Black Panthers, a group to which he believed Crow belonged to, were going to come after them. He was basically sitting there watching TV, probably tripping on acid, going, Holy shit, I shot a black guy tonight! He must remember the Black Crows. I mean, the Black Panthers. The Black Black Crows. Jesus (laughs) Christ. I love that band. (laughs) The dynamic of the group further changed. This theory alleges when Manson invited the motorcycle gang known as the Straight Satans to live on the ranch to enjoy female company in exchange for protecting the rest of the group from the Black Panthers. The straight Satans weren't the only ones he invited to the ranch for that reason. He was basically whoring out the female members of his family so he could get protection from the Black Panthers. He was deathly afraid of them. weren't coming after him. Yeah. Yeah, that had no reason to come after him. Probably had no idea who he even was. Exactly. Like, he's not even on the fucking radar. Yeah, he's not even a blip. Boussoulet wanted to impress the straight Satans, so when they wanted drugs, he volunteered to go find some. He got them some mescaline he'd purchased from his friend Gary Hinman, a grad student at UCLA. After the straight Satans complained that the drugs were bad and wanted their money back, Manson convinced Beausoleil to confront Hinman and demand from him not only the drug money, but anything else of value he possessed. Boussoulet drove with Bruce Davis, Susan Atkins, and Mary Brunner to Hinman's house on July 25th, 1969. At the house, Boussoulet pulled a gun on Hinman when he refused to give back the money. There was nothing wrong with the mescaline, Hinman said. Susan kept the gun on Hinman while Boussoulet searched the house, but Hinman managed to overpower her, causing Boussoulet to beat him. Eventually, Davis drove back to Spawn Ranch to pick up Manson, who wanted to take part in what was to follow. Manson brought a sword and used it to slash Hinman's face and cut off part of his ear. So this is a direct quote from Charlie Manson. Gary's a freak behind some kind of Japanese Buddhism, so I took my sword along to intimidate his ass with a display of fine oriental swordsmanship. 
Oriental swordsmanship. And he, like, when he did it, he did it like such a fucking pussy. He just went, and just, like, quickly stuck the sword out and, like, cut off Hinman's ear. I mean, he got the job done, so. Uh, He didn't get the money. No, he didn't get the money shot, but he got something. He did take an ear. He did. Lend me an ear, Hinman. (laughs) After Manson left, Boussoulet continued to beat Hinman over the course of the night and into the next day with Susan and Mary still present. Mary and Susan stitched up his ear with dental floss while Gary, who didn't believe in violence, just kept on asking them to leave. Yeah, this guy just kept begging them. Like, I don't have any fucking money. Would you please go? Yeah. I got got nothing for you, dude. Hinman maintained that he had no money and threatened to call the police as soon as they left. Worried that Hinman would call the police, Boussoulet stabbed him to death on July 27th, making the murder look as though the Black Panthers did it in retaliation for the murder of Lotsa Papa. Boussoulet stabbed Hinman to death and used his blood to write the phrase political piggy and a Black Panther symbol in the in blood on the wall in an attempt to blame Hinman's death on the Black Panthers. Boussoulet, Susan, and Mary tried to remove their fingerprints from Hinman's home before they drove away in his cars. It took two weeks before anyone found Hinman's body. In the heat of the summer in Topanga Canyon. Gross. Yeah. He was not a pretty sight to fucking see. I no. would not imagine that to be. No. Yeah. Boussoulet tried to distance himself from the Manson family after he murdered Gary Hinman and drove to San Francisco, leaving his pregnant girlfriend Kitty behind. Boussoulet drove in one of the cars he'd stolen from Hinman, the very car in which he'd stashed the bloody knife. When the car broke down, police were called to the scene. They examined the car, quickly finding the knife. Police arrested Boussoulet and matched his fingerprints to those found at the Hinman's house. Boussoulet was booked for homicide and taken into custody on August 6th. So after they had come back to the ranch and told Charlie that they killed Hinman. Uh-huh. He was like, well, that makes two now. So he thinks two people are dead and he's like ready to get the fuck out of there. He's like, I don't want to go back to jail. Right. I'm hitting the fucking road. And he just dips the fuck out. And uh squeaky t- tells him, but we're a family. We got to see this through type of shit. Uh-huh. He's like, nah, fuck it. And he goes out. And they kill him on, you know, this happens, what, July 26th? 27th. 27th. So they come back to the ranch. Manson dipsets and just goes off and by himself trying to figure his shit out and just starts doing a bunch of acid and picks up a chick. And then he comes back to the ranch. On the morning of Friday, August 6th, 1969, Charles Manson returned to Spawn Ranch After several days away, he arrived to bad news. Bobby Boussoulet had been picked up by police and charged with the murder of musician Gary Hinman. Manson worried he might spill the beans about the framed crime scene or what had happened with Bernard Crowe. Manson told Watson to figure out a way to keep things quiet. 
Someone at the ranch hatched a plan to replicate a copycat crime scene elsewhere. So police would believe Beausoleil's story that Hinman's killer was still on the loose. It's funny that that's the best plan that they could come up with. Right? He's listening to people that listen to the Beatles album and get high on acid and do orgies. Yeah, that's a good point. Most of these people are... You're, you're right. Most of these people are on acid. I'm going to be the voice of reason That's on this. That's a great idea. Yeah. You know, the fact that they could actually function on acid at the level that they're functioning at is quite impressive. You, you know what? You're right. Later on that night, two other Manson family members, Mary Brunner and Sandra Good, were also arrested at the same time for using a stolen credit card. Their bail was only $600. But their arrest, combined with Beausoleil's, was enough to send Manson into a rage spiral. So this is the point where those last two screws finally fucking came loose. All Um, right. Manson is completely fucking unhinged. His family has officially fallen the fuck apart. Yeah. And he's like, fuck it. The world has rejected me. The world's rejected us. And if they're going to make monsters out of us, we're going to show them we're fucking monsters. Of course. And they, because remember in the last episode, when they were at the uh, spiral staircase, somebody appeared to Charlie as a Christ-like figure and said, Mm -hmm. these are your loves and you must protect them. Yeah. And somebody is fucking with his loves. We don't like that. Charlie don't like when people fuck with his loves. On the night of August 8th, 1969, Charlie found Tex Watson and told him it's time, but the girls don't have a place picked out, so it's up to him where to go. Tex wasn't sure where to go either, and to that, Charlie said, Come on, Tex, you've been to lots of these rich guys' places. Go somewhere like Terry used to live. It was an off, just, jest comment that... Tex Watson's belladonna-soaked brain picked up and who goes, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll go there, Charlie. Yeah. Just that's the comment that fucking set this whole thing off for this night. Charlie then told Patricia Krenwinkle, who was coming down from an acid trip, that she'd be going out with Tex, Susan Atkins, and Linda Kasabian. So Linda Kasabian had been in the group for a fucking month. Talk about drawing the shortest fucking straw. For real. And the only reason she went is because she was the only one with a valid driver's license. I think I remember that. Yeah, she she was the only one who... Because we're going out to murder people, but God forbid if we get pulled over. That's the line. I mean, if you're going to break the law, don't break the law when you're breaking the law. That's a good point, Sam. Well, they didn't want to get pulled over and it stop. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to cover all my bases. Yeah. Make sure all the bases are covered. From there, the group set out to 10500 Cielo Drive. So before they left, Manson told Susan Atkins this. If you're going to do something, do it well and leave something witchy. Because Manson didn't want to know shit what they were doing, what they had planned. Possible deniability. Exactly. He's like, I didn't tell nobody to do nothing. So from here, let's talk about the victims. Sharon Tate, 
a Texas pageant girl, an army brat, Tate broke into acting while attending high school in Italy. She'd already made a name for herself as a fashion model and comedic actress by the time she married Roman Polanski in January of 1968. And if you remember, we talked about Roman Polanski's connection to Rodney Acala. Yeah. So there you go. So now a cult classic, 1967's Valley of the Dolls, established the typical media response to her performances, which tended to fixate on her sex appeal while mocking her acting ability. Still, Tate's role in the film garnered her a Golden Globe nomination, and Polanski always believed in her talent. She was 26 at the time of her death. And a fun fact about where we're from, Sharon Tate actually made an appearance at a movie premiere here in Myrtle Beach, like, months before she died. No way. Yeah, look that shit up. That's crazy. So, Abigail Folger, the 26-year-old heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune... Abigail hadn't simply rested in the lap of her luxury. She graduated from Harvard with a master's degree in art history and worked for a time at a Berkeley art museum before moving to L.A. in 1968. Once there, she threw herself into activism, doing volunteer work for an urban welfare program and working for a racially charged city council campaign. She and her boyfriend, Bochik Frykowski, spent most of the spring and summer of 1969 house-sitting for Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate, at 10500 Cielo Drive. Even though Sharon returned from overseas work at the end of the summer, Roman invited Abigail and Frykowski to keep living there through August. So they were all just hanging out in the house together on the night of August 8, 1969. Wojciech Frykowski grew up in Poland and studied chemistry. He became bar buddies with Roman Polanski while hanging around film studios. He worked as a lifeguard on Polanski's first film, Knife in the Water, and ultimately moved to California where he met his girlfriend, Abigail Folger. In Polanski's autobiography, Roman by Polanski, the filmmaker reportedly described Frykowski as, quote, good-natured, soft-hearted to the point of sentimentally and utterly loyal. He was 33 at the night of Tate murders. Jay Sebring, a Birmingham, Alabama native and a Korean War Navy veteran, Sebring became a celebrity stylist during the 60s by importing many European fashion trends to Los Angeles. Tricks like the then astonishing tactic of shampooing men's hair before styling it. Wait, 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 wait. So shampooing a man's hair before styling it wasn't a thing until the 60s? Apparently not. What the fuck? Just dirty raw dogging it in their (laughs) nasty ass head. Just brush off the chiggers in my hair. Ew. He did hair for several movies and is credited with designing Jim Morrison's iconic hairstyle as well as inventing the entire men's hair industry. His salon grew into an international hair company before his death. 
Through the mid-60s, he and Sharon Tate were extremely close, first dating and remaining best friends. Sebring was 35 years old when he was killed at 10500 Cielo Drive. On Sharon Tate's last day alive, the pregnant actress argued with her husband and ate lunch by the pool with her friends. She took a nap and may have gone out to dinner at the well-known Los Angeles restaurant El Coyote. By all accounts, she was home before 10 p.m. And there's this scam that El Coyote runs where you can go in there and order the last thing the Tate group ordered before they died. No way. And they just bring you the most expensive shit on the menu. What the heck? That's not even. They really fucking leaned into it. So Tex, Susan, Linda, and Patricia all climbed up a brushy platform to gain entrance to the property. First, they saw Stephen Parent, who had come to try and sell a clock radio to the estate's caretaker, William Gerritsen. He is the most... So this is the victim we didn't give a full description of. Uh-huh. Um, he is the most unlucky man on the planet. Right? Talk about being at the wrong place at the wrong fucking time. Yeah. He... And here's the saddest part. He died a failure. He did not sell the clock radio. Oh, no. Unfulfilled. Right? I'm unfulfilled. Tex stopped Parent, swung a knife at him, and then shot him four times in the chest and abdomen. Tex Watson entered the residence by cutting the screen of a window and opened the front door for Susan and Patricia. Linda was at the end of the driveway to keep watch. Tex and the group entered the residence and found Brykowski sleeping on the couch in the living room. Folger in bed reading a book and Tate talking to Sebring in the back bedroom. So, when Tex, Tex accidentally woke up Frakowski uh-huh. because he was whispering to the girls. And startled, Frakowski asked, what time is it? And then Tex stuck the gun barrel in, in Frakowski's face and said, be quiet, don't move, or you're dead. Frakowski replied to that, saying, who are you and what are you doing here? Tex leaned in and told him, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. My soul would leave my body if that was the first thing that I heard upon waking up. Talk about like an acid thought. Like, he's two of the three people in the house from the Manson family are tripping balls at this point. And I'm not so sure Susan Atkins wasn't. Does Tex ever even come down from a trip? I don't think he can. It's like the, permanently I think in his the, brain. Uh, yeah, I think the Belladonna route like permanently fucked him up. Ugh. But what an awesome line. What an awesome fucking line. I don't even know what I would do if I woke up to that. Uh, shit your pants and cry? Pro- I would probably shit my pants. For real. Tate and Sebring were tied together by their necks and brought to the living room. Folger was taken into a nearby bedroom. Talk about the worst part of waking up. (laughs) Tex then announced that they were going to kill them to save his brother. 
Sebring was shot and stabbed seven times. Frykowski was bound by a towel but managed to free himself. After doing so, he became involved in a physical altercation with Susan Atkins, resulting in her stabbing him in the legs. Frykowski continued to flee, but Tex struck him with the gun multiple times over the head, shot and stabbed him multiple times. The gun grip broke off as a result of Tex striking Frykowski over the head. Like, Frykowski made it to the yard. Like, he made it to the yard and Tex caught up to him. Because he'd been stabbed in the fucking leg. He, he was already... Yeah, he was wounded. Yeah. Abigail fled the room she was taken to and was chased by Patricia. Abigail was stabbed by Patricia and eventually stabbed by Tex as well. She was stabbed a total of 28 times by both Patricia and Tex. Meanwhile, Frykowski was struggling across the lawn when Tex came to stab him again. Frykowski was stabbed a total of 51 times. So, the saddest part about Abigail Folger was she was stabbed so many times when the police found her. They thought her white nightgown was red. Wow. Um, And as Patricia was stabbed, like Big Patty was stabbing her, Uh she just said, just stop. Stop, I'm already dead. Those were like her final words. Oh my god. Just just please stop. Stop stabbing me. I'm already dead. Tate, witnessing the horrific crimes, pleaded with Atkins for mercy, but was rejected. Tate was stabbed a total of sixteen times, and her unborn child did not survive the incident. As they left, Susan Atkins used Tate's blood to write the word pig on the front door. So crazy fact about this, this little side story off topic, uh, nine inch nails actually used that house as a recording studio for a minute. What? And when they left because they felt bad about like, cause I guess, uh, Trent Reznor ran into like, uh, Sharon Tate's sister and she was like why are you exploiting my sister's death and he's like I never thought about it like that but he stole the front door off of uh, the house no way and used it at pig studios like his next studio oh my god in the late hours of that night Tate's neighbors claimed to have heard suspected gunshots but did not alert the authorities There were also reports of a man's screams coming from the Tate residence. Later in the night, a private security guard hired by property owners also heard gunshots coming from a Tate residence and proceeded to notify the LAPD. The following morning, at 8 a.m., the housekeeper, Winifred Chapman, came into the residence and discovered the brutally murdered bodies. On August 10th, 1969, the night after the Tate murder, Manson and six of the Manson family members, Leslie Van Houten, Steve Grogan, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Charles Watson committed another murder. Unlike the Tate murder, Manson joined in on the La Bianca murder because he felt that there was not enough panic among the victims from the Tate murder. 
Manson and the family members drove around looking for prospective murder victims when they arrived in the neighborhood of a home in which they had attended a party a year prior. The neighboring home belonged to a successful grocery company owner, Leno LaBianca, and his wife, Rosemary. Leno LaBianca, the son of Italian immigrants, LaBianca was a brilliant student who married his high school sweetheart before serving in Europe during World War II and becoming a sergeant first class in the Army Reserve thereafter. Though he fathered three kids, his first marriage disintegrated after the war. In 1959, he married again in a Vegas wedding to Rosemary LaBianca, and though her kids lived with them in their house on Waverly Drive, the children were with friends out of town the weekend of the murders. Rosemary LaBianca grew up in Arizona and moved to Los Angeles sometime in the 1940s during her late teens. Her first marriage resulted in two children, but ended in divorce, and she turned her attention to business. On the profits of a mobile dress shop she invented, she became a self-made millionaire and wealthy investor. In 1959, she married Leno LaBianca, and in 1968, the pair moved into his childhood home on Waverly Drive in what was intended to be a temporary living arrangement. There are several differing accounts from the Manson and six Manson family members, so the exact happenings of the murder aren't certain. Manson claims that he approached the home alone and returned later to bring Watson along. When Manson and Watson were in the residence, they tied up the LaBianca couple with a lamp cord and with pillowcases covering their heads. Manson reassured the couple that he would not hurt them and that they were being robbed. I love that. I don't like, I don't love it. He's a, he's a piece of shit, but they learned their lesson from the, the previous night. Like if you tell him, you know, you're going to kill him, then all hell's going to break loose. Yeah. So Manson says, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just here to rob you. And uh, he, he was being honest. He wasn't going to hurt them. That's what he had Tex Watson for. Oh, well, of course. All the cash was collected, and the bounded Rosemary was returned to her room. Soon after, Van Houten and Krenwinkel entered the premises with the instructions from Manson to kill the couple. Manson left the residence and instructed Van Houten and Krenwinkel to follow Watson's orders. Watson began stabbing Leno multiple times when Leno cried out to stop stabbing him. Afterwards, in the bedroom, Rosemary began to swing the lamp still attached to the cord wrapped around her neck. Van Houten and Krenwinkel yelled for Watson's aid and stabbed Rosemary multiple times. Watson gave the knife to Van Houten and she continued to stab Rosemary. She was stabbed a total of 41 times by Watson, Van Houten, and Krenwinkel. That's one of the um, the main things is Manson told Tex Watson that they all need to stab everybody. Because that nobody would roll on that if they were all implemented in it. Uh-huh. So that was the logic behind them taking turns stabbing them. And Leslie Van Houten said at one point she thought it was fun. 
Watson returned to the living room and continued to stab and kill Leno. Krenwinkel carved the word war into Leno's stomach, stabbed Leno multiple times, left a carving fork sticking out of his stomach, and left a knife in Leno's throat. He was stabbed a total of 26 times, which, talking about it, makes it seem like he was stabbed a lot more than 26 times. Yeah. I would say Rosemary got the worst out of this. What yeah. if they stabbed in the same holes? I mean, at that them. point, they're just wildly stabbing. Yeah. It's probably more than that. I, yeah, I feel like that description would be more than 26 stab wounds. Well, you know, they were probably tired after stabbing Rosemary. Of course. All those times. This was a, uh, an intense night for them. And then carving war into Action his stomach with a, with a carving fork. <laughs> On the walls of the living room, quote, death to pigs and rise were written in Leno's blood. On the refrigerator door, a misspelled helter-skelter was smeared. Yeah, you can thank Patricia Krenwinkle for not being able to spell helter-skelter correctly. <laughs> she spelled it helter-skelter. Kilter Skilter. Um, yeah. You, you would think, you know, the song they listen to on fucking repeat and the thing Manson's right. been preaching, she would, you know, know, know how, how to, to spell, spell that. You'd think. Frank Struthers, Rosemary's son from a prior marriage, returned from a trip and found it suspicious that the shades were drawn. He also found it suspicious that Leno's speedboat was still parked in the driveway. Struthers called his sister to alert her, and she came with her boyfriend, Joe Dorgan. Dorgan and Struthers entered the home through the side door and found Leno's body, and LAPD was alerted. So, this whole thing, over the last 48 hours, the murders are practically just a red herring. All a plot to make sure Bobby Boussoulet was released before he could implicate Manson for shooting Crow and suggesting that they kill Hinman. Right. So, and the whole plan is just half-baked, half-cocked, and goes horribly awry half from jump. Ass. Yeah. And at is the end of the day... half-ass or on full acid? It's full <laughs> acid, half-assed. Yeah. <laughs> Initially, in the Tate murder investigation, the home caretaker was arrested because he was found at the scene. He was released after passing a polygraph test. Although LA Sheriff's Department made contact with the LAPD regarding the striking similarities of the Tate and Hinman murders, LAPD was insistent that the Tate murder was a result of a drug transaction. Once again, the LAPD... Good old LAPD. Fucking botches, botching investigations. Not the LAPD. What no, are you talking about? No way. Not them. Fun fact, the two investigation teams, because there were two, they didn't investigate the LaBianca and Tate murders together. They didn't even put that together. Of course. Until later on. They were on the same fucking floor in the, in the building, like where they were doing all their work. Mm-hmm. Didn't didn't cross their fucking minds to maybe like share notes or good old do anything LAPD. Like that. The LAPD back in this time really did not share anything. No. With anybody themselves. Just failure. Just failure. <laughs> so because of their lack of communication, the murder investigations led to separate dead ends. 
The Hinman murder was under the jurisdiction of the L.A. Sheriff's Department, and Beausoleil was arrested. The La Bianca murder was under LAPD jurisdiction, but a formal announcement by LAPD incorrectly confirmed that the Tate murder and La Bianca murders were not connected. Police raided the Manson family at Spawn Ranch shortly after the murders, but it was on suspicion of car theft. Yeah, you know, all those dune buggies they had been making (laughs) from stolen vehicles. The family was quickly released due to the date being wrong on the warrant, and Manson relocated full-time to Barker Ranch at Death Valley. Before they left Spawn Ranch, however, Manson ordered yet another killing. The August 26th murder of Donald Shea, a ranch hand whom Manson blamed for informing on him about the stolen cars to the police. So if you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Donald Shea is basically Brad Pitt's character. Is where they took inspiration for that, yeah. Donald Shorty Shay, the last murder Manson ordered while living at Spawn Ranch, was that of Shorty Shay, a ranch employee who clashed with Manson several times. After the Tate LaBianca murders, Manson became convinced that Shay was a police informant and ordered several members of the family to kill him. Shay was beaten and stabbed to death on August 28, 1969. He was 36 years old. That was Bruce Davis and Steve Grogan that did that. Yeah? Yep. In October of 1969, many members of the family, including Manson, were arrested. Again, not for the Tate or the La Bianca murders, but for stealing RV equipment. But by this point, the police who were investigating the La Bianca murders had finally connected the dots between the two murders and linked them back to the murder of Hinman and Manson's involvement in it. On December 1st, police issued warrants for the five main participants in the Tate-La Bianca killings. Manson, Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten. So when they raided the, the Barker Ranch in October... They they were pulling everybody out of there, and they were checking one last cabin. Uh-huh. And the cop goes in there and starts inspecting and sees hair sticking out from one of the cupboards on the ground. And then all of a sudden, he opens it because it's like, what the fuck is this? He sees, you know, seeing hair, and then he saw uh-huh. some fingers, and he tells whoever's in there to get out. And it's fucking Charles Manson. He hid himself in a cupboard because he was small enough to do so. He's such a little guy. And the cop said that he would have never checked that spot if he hadn't seen the hair sticking out. I don't have words for the amount of fuck-ups that have happened. Freaking LAPD. No, just Charles. He's just He just has the short end of the stick. Uh. <laughs> See what you did there. It was good. A sensationalized 1971 trial followed, characterized by disruptive outbursts from Manson and his supporters inside the courtroom and protests from his supporters outside the courthouse. Ultimately, Charles Manson was convicted on seven counts of first-degree murder for the Tate-LaBianca killings. 
later followed by two more convictions for the deaths of Hinman and Shay, Spawn Ranch Hand. Manson, Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten were all sentenced to death, though their death penalties were changed to life sentences the following year with the abolishment of the death penalty in the state of California. And that's where we'll conclude our uh, Summer of Slaughter and our series on Charles Manson. Now, we could go in more about Manson live from prison, but we just don't have the time. Or you can just go and find any YouTube or Netflix Oh, it's great. And just watch it. He makes a brief appearance in Mindhunter. Now, there is another Manson story. But I just we don't have the time to cover it. But it's a shootout in an army surplus that they were trying to hijack a helicopter and a bunch of people so that they would release the rest of the family. If you want to look into that, look up the the Manson army surplus shootout. It's fucking crazy. But yeah, um, guys, thank you so much, so much for coming along with us on this fun. fun journey of true crime this summer and we have some cryptids coming down the pipe next week for a spooky season it is spooky season indeed i'm so excited i love spooky season um i am thriving my body is ready the house is already decorated shit's going down i am going to break out the sweaters. I don't care that it's still 85 degrees. Isn't that sad? We live in a state that is, is too damn hot to so even hot. enjoy them yeah. for that long. The leaves don't en- even change here till December. You can December. enjoy them in like no. December, maybe January for sure. Yeah, we still have like 70 degree days in December. I know. It's Janu- bullshit. January and February, they got you. Yes. Yes, they do. All right, ladies. Let's drop these socials and... Make sure that you are following the show, downloading the show. Make sure you're leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and letting we us like know. We like that. Yes, we like it. We mm-hmm. love it. Makes me tighten the pants. <laughs> Leave them reviews. Uh, that really just fucked me up for a second. <laughs> Sam's watching. Full Sam's dying over there. <laughs> I'm okay. Um, if you guys have any suggestions on some cryptids that aren't the normal ones, we're going to try yeah. to cover some ones that are B-list. The B-listers. Yeah. Are they B-list? Um, not to the locals that are, you know, that's their urban legends, but I, I didn't, I didn't want to do like the obvious mainstream ones like Bigfoot and leprechauns. Yeah. And- like just dumbass shit. So, so we're yeah. gonna do some off off the grid cryptids. Yeah, I would say like B B tier. The cryptids. JV team. Yeah, I'm okay with the JV team. They still wait. We we're gonna throw, throw in some varsity heavy hitters. Yeah, we're yes. definitely gonna throw in a couple big boys in there, but <laughs> big boys. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, guys, um, thank you again, and we'll see you next Friday. Yes. Stay creepy. Stay creepy, everybody.